This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. As you heard in Bob's News, the Prime Minister unveiled his 38-member cabinet, kicking off his third term, even though Parliament won't be back for another month. The key moves, as he mentioned, include Anita Anand, the former Procurement Minister, replacing Harjit Sajjan in defence. Mark Garneau is out at Foreign Affairs and out all together, and the word is that he'll be posted as an ambassador soon enough. Melanie Jolie becomes the fifth foreign minister under Trudeau. Remember his boastful announcement that Canada is back on the world stage? And Patty Haidu, whose poor performance in health was widely panned, gets Indigenous services and Northern Ontario economic development. And my question is, is she failing up or failing down? Jean-Yves Duclos, the former Treasury Board president, gets the health portfolio. Carolyn Bennett leaves Crown Indigenous Relations, also in the wake of a lot of criticism, and she gets the junior port- portion of the newly split health portfolio. Environmental activist Stephen Gubot takes over at Environment Former broadcaster Marcy Ian gets into cabinet as the Minister for Women, Gender Equality and Youth. And finally, but not lastly, and key for our demographic, Brampton West MP Kamal Kara becomes Minister for Seniors. Whoa. Okay. We have to keep all of that in mind. And now I'd like to welcome our crack strategy panel, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Sousa, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hello. Hey, good afternoon. Hi, Charles. Uh, since you are the Liberal and a former cabinet minister, um, just in, in general, what do you think about this newly unveiled team? Um, I, I think it's pretty exciting. I, I know there's a lot of new faces. Um, I'm excited about some colleagues of mine that have been appointed into cabinet that were there with me previously. And, um, I, you know, and, and, and the prime minister wants to uh, shake it up a little bit, provide some new faces. Uh, he, he has retained some of his most trusted individuals, like Dominic LeBlanc and Freeland. And um, Foreign Affairs, I think, is a critical job. And Melanie Jolie, that's a huge promotion for her. And it's critical for us to have some degree of stability in that role, especially with uh, what's happening around the world. And Wait, his wait a minute, stability. She, she is the fifth, his yeah, fifth Foreign Affairs Minister. And Mark Garneau, the word on him was, uh, it's not that he was doing a bad job. It's just that he sometimes pushed back against uh, what the PMO was trying to make him do. Uh, he'll be a, a big loss. There's some institutional memory with Mark Arnaud, and uh, he's, a, and I, by all accounts, he's going to remain in some form, be it in a diplomatic post, but um, you're absolutely right. I, I think it's, uh, it's shameful that we had so many changes in foreign affairs. We need some stability there. Okay, uh, John Capobianco, uh, what do you think? And also some of the other big moves. We have a female defense minister now. Now, Anita Nad, everybody's talking about what a great job she did. Ultimately, she did do a good job, but we were, is everybody forgetting how late we were getting vaccines? It wasn't until basically the second quarter. A lot of people died and we were way behind other Western countries. Is, is no one remembering that? Yeah, well, uh, the prime minister is not remembering that, I think. But but I do think that, you know, he was committed uh, from the very beginning to have a cabinet that was gender uh, uh, parity, uh, which he's accomplished. I think there's 39 uh, cabinet ministers and, and he's got uh, an equal number of, of men and women uh, on cabinet, which I thought was one of his key, key goals. And in order for that to accomplish that, that's never easy. Um, you know, because you have to really draw on, on you know, those who got elected and, and you know, current ministers that, that are, that worked well, didn't work well. So that's likely why it took some time for, uh, for the prime minister to finally get a cabinet sworn in, uh, since the election campaign. But, you know, I, a couple of notes and, and one is to say that, 
you know, the, the major portfolios and the ones that we widely expected that were going to be shuffled out or around, namely Harjit Sajjan in, in defense. I think that happened, and that's fairly good news, um, you know, just given the fact that the, our, our defense department has been such tatters and, and, and just bad, uh, you know, just bad stuff happening there, and, and he, there wasn't really much leadership from, from him on this issue. So now that we've got uh, somebody in there that is new and fresh and is going to be able to take a look at it, not least of which, of course, a woman uh, in that role, I think is going to be important. And Anita... And then, as you said, you know, I think she had a really uh, sort of slow start to her ministry of procurement. I think that we all remember, some of us do, as you said correctly, that the, the time we got our vaccines, it was far later than the U.S. and other jurisdictions. But I do think that Anita, since then, uh, certainly worked hard to uh, to promote herself and to do what she had to do to get that portfolio back in check and, and is widely seen as fairly competent. So hopefully that, that, that'll translate into that department because it needs it. The other one I think that we mentioned too, which is an interesting one, is Melanie Jolie. She also had a pretty bad, pretty slow start as a cabinet minister early on uh, and uh, was shuffled out of her ministry. I, I think it was uh, I can't remember if it was an environment or, or I can't remember which one it was, but nonetheless she held foreign affairs. Yeah, I mean that's a that is a huge promotion for her. Uh the other thing I want to get to Karen is health. Now health is a provincial responsibility except uh the federal government has a lot of uh money involved and people are calling for national standards long-term care. The outgoing health minister Patty Hyde, I mean widely considered to have really underperformed and uh Jean-Yves Duclos the, who was in Treasury Board, uh, he's getting put in there. Uh, is that a hopeful thing for you? Also, the whole portfolio has been split. Yeah, I, I think it is hopeful. And I think uh, to the points that were raised, uh, you know, by John, that there were certain things that had to be done. And one of them was a shift in the, in the Ministry of Health. And I think splitting it into two, you know, I don't know if that was just a concession to Carolyn Bennett or not. But, you know, given that it is a provincial responsibility, it doesn't seem to necessitate the splitting of that portfolio. Um, but you know, well, I, yeah. I, if I may interject, I mean, actually, uh, here we have a minister who is also dedicated to addiction. So, uh, you know, it seems uh, like a kind of hands-on thing that really is provincial. One hundred percent. And you know, really, what it's about. I mean, the federal government, of course, has an interest in outcomes because they fund the outcomes. But I think the call for national standards is, is going to be a call that's not answered because. Many provinces don't want, I mean, namely Quebec, they don't want national standards. And uh, even Ontario is is resistant to that sort of thing. So I don't think it's, um, you know, as 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 COVID retreats, uh, hopefully it will continue to retreat, I think that that portfolio will become less and less material in people's lives. And, you know, and I think that, you know, really, there are only two ministers that matter, the prime minister and the finance minister, and everybody else is just going to tow the line that comes from the PMO's office. So it's really, um, you know, I don't think that important who's in what post other than some changes did need to get made. Okay, well, you know, I'm going to take a call who I think is saying the exact same thing as you, Karen. Jody in Toronto. Hi, Jody. Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. Libby, I just want to say I don't think the average Canadian really cares who's appointed to this cabinet or any other cabinet. We all know that these people do not specialize in any way in the roles that they're put in. We spend billions upon billions of dollars hiring specialists who do specialize in these things to advise them. It's just, it, it, it's just something, I don't know, like a, like a balloon thing. You know, it's just something to do. We don't really care who's in there. The government just kind of reacts to whatever is on the news, whatever, you know, okay, there's a lot of addiction, let's do that, let's do this. But as far as who's in there, we really don't care. Okay, Jody, thanks for that. Well, I think we sort of do care about the outcome, and uh, I think that we do care when there there are people who are, you know, that uh, stars and dogs designation, when people are doing a really bad job, you can tell. And uh, on the other side, if they're doing a really good job, you, you can also tell, Charles. I agree. I, I, know, I know, Jody, you, know, you make a comment that many, I guess, are making. People aren't really paying attention. They don't really know who the ministers are. They'll know if they screw up, and they'll know if they're shining. And the positive line is, 
these individuals do create policy. They do create direction. I'm hoping that they don't make political decisions for the sake of just winning at the next election, because that's obviously what also, that happens all too often. But I'm, I'm, I, I, I got I to gotta think and I got to believe that when you look at a minority government that Trudeau's under, he needs to have some qualified individual that's going to have to work effectively with other governments, other political parties, but other provinces now, even more so than before. One of the critical ones is Dominic LeBlanc. As minority, as intergovernmental affairs, and the one in charge of infrastructure, a commitment made by uh, the prime minister during the election, that will mean something to us, Jody. That will mean something to all of us. I'm hopeful that they'll get their act together. Uh-huh. Well, um, yeah, I mean, w- one of the things is, and this is a feature of, uh, it's it's not a liberal feature, it certainly was true under Stephen Harper, that government is more and more controlled by the Prime Minister's office. Uh, so uh, what do you make of that, John? Yeah, there's uh, there's very few ministers um, um, within each, within any cabinet, be it provincial or, or federal or, or any party, conservative or liberal, um, that have the ability, the, the strength, the, 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 the relationship with the leader, be it the prime minister or the premier, where they might be able to, um, um, you know, sort of make their own decisions or, or at least, uh, push forward sort of agenda items that others might not. But, but by and large, it, there, there is control, right? And, and that does, and that makes sense. You want to be able to have, as prime minister, as a premier, you want to be able to have some level of control because if you let you know 39 of your ministers go off and do their thing without much uh, you know check-in uh, that could be that could be quite unwieldy and, and quite frankly it could be scary in, in some respects so you want to be able to have some level of control so a lot of these folks will get mandate letters uh, and you know as we've seen with the with the, the, the federal liberal government with with Trudeau in the past is that he actually publicizes uh, and makes it known what his mandate letters are. Mandate letters are are given to to ministers, and it basically spells out what their responsibilities are, what they need to do, what they need to focus on, and that I think helps uh, in some ways because it's set, essentially it's a term of reference, it's a job description saying, okay, you're now the new minister of defense. Here's your term of reference, or here's your mandate letter. Here's what we expect you to do over the course of the next little while, and that's given out in the media. Of course, we'll we'll follow that, and a lot of stakeholders, a lot of companies, organizations who have to deal with these respective ministers will look will. Pay attention to those mandate letters. So that's something else that I think helps in some way to, to kind of, you know, farm out some of the responsibilities of some of these ministers. But without a doubt, though, a lot of it is controlled. But there's some, you know, like, you know, we mentioned, you know, Mark Mandicino, who's done a good job, and, and certainly uh, Dominic LeBlanc. Those, those kind of individuals, those kind of ministers have a lot of sway with the prime minister and can normally do things uh, on an independent basis, knowing that nine out of ten times they won't, uh, they won't make a mistake. Hmm. And it's interesting that uh, um, Marco Mendicino, who uh, had a pretty good reputation in immigration, he's he's replacing the former chief of police uh, of Toronto as public safety minister. So there you go, uh, that your professional previous life does not necessarily mean that that you do a good job. I mean, here we only have to look provincially at Melanie Fullerton, Marilee Fullerton, who was a doctor. You see, she's out. I'm forgetting her name. <laughs> and that did not translate. Karen, so, so what do you see as, uh, you know, what do you see that you want from this government as we kind of head out of the pandemic, hopefully? Yeah, I, I think that the biggest challenge for this government continues to remain truth and reconciliation, because although it's it's you know they've been successful in highlighting uh, you know, the collective national consciousness around the importance of it, um, yet we're still it's just it feels as if we're not making the strides, and um, you know and again it, this isn't the kind of discussion that takes place overnight and then it's solved. It's it's a dialogue that continues, but I think that there is. Um, I think that there there needs to be some movement in that file. There needs to be from both the Aboriginal community and Canadians at large to see that yeah that we're making we're, 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 we have a path now that we're moving along and making making some progress. And um, and I think that that's been made harder by some recent events and and will be made harder still if the government chooses to challenge the Human Rights Tribunal decision. But um, I think that's really one thing that Trudeau has to be demonstrating to be making gains in. And, you know, and, and I think the other, you know, it is, 
the foreign affairs, I think it is a lost post in a lot of ways because I think most people don't really know or care. But foreign affairs, I think, is becoming more important and becoming um, a ministry that should have more clout and should have more um, power associated with it because the world is becoming a very dangerous place. And Canada is not um, showing up on the world stage in the way that we used to either we used we used to and now nobody can no nobody believes we're there and we're not there and and i think that will be a problem for us um when we're talking about climate change negotiations when we're talking about um, our role in international relations so i think it's it's unfortunate that someone with more clout wasn't put in that role well, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting you're talking about reconciliation. So Carolyn Bennett was in charge of that file. She had the senior part of that file. She was uh, widely panned. I know that before the last election, uh, there was some talk that she might retire. She's, she's not really popular anyway. And uh, she's been moved to the junior part of health. That's really a a provincial thing. Now, um, Mark Miller, who had the junior role in Indigenous services, has moved to the main one. And he, I would say, at least seems extremely sincere, um, if nothing else. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know. Um, uh, but again, you know, a, a lot of these things are sort of uh, pretty far from the day-to-day for most people. So I guess uh, the onus, Charles, is still on Christian Freeland and in finance and Carla Quantro. I think she's she crafted some of the programs for people coming out of this. I mean, uh, for a lot of people, as as we see a pullback, and again, it was interesting that Christian Freeland sort of off the cuff, without briefing anybody, released the new, uh, you know, the new programs, you know, before anybody was ready for it last week. So uh, the whole cabinet thing, you know, maybe a touch superfluous. <laughs> um, yeah, and and again, I mean, uh, Christian Freeland is one of the senior members, and she does have some intimate knowledge about what's taking place, uh, but yeah, that's uh, you have to be a bit more cautious in regards to There was no ministry at the time, right? She at the time spoke when there hadn't been a cabinet shuffle. Um, but you do want advocates. You do want ministers that will speak out, uh, and sometimes I found even myself, uh, you know, you get asked questions, you get put on the spot, you make a decision at times on the fly without consultation, and then suddenly it becomes policy. It becomes the way it should, and because as long as it makes sense, as long as it's relevant, you proceed. And if I look at Anita Anand, for example, who is going to defense, which seems like a very odd place for her, but knowing her from her past, knowing the advocate she's been for consumer protection measures, and knowing the culture that needs to be changed within that ministry, she'll light a fire. She'll make some of those, uh, just by her presence being the minister, will ignite some of those changes, I'm hopeful, in culture. Because she was a huge advocate for consumer protection in investment communities and for those most uh, vulnerable. And I see her taking that kind of a stand in respect to what's happening in defense as well. Uh, And as a final question on this, uh, let me ask you, John, are they behaving like they have a majority government? Well, you know, yes, I I think that they are. I think the fact that the prime minister hasn't, you know, convened uh, uh, parliament back as soon as they, uh, as soon as they ought to, given the fact that we had this election campaign that where he declared it to be an important one and critical and, you know, we needed a mandate and, and, and so forth. And, and the fact that we're not even, you know, now we're just getting the, the cabinet sworn in. And, of course, the, the, the parliament doesn't come back for another month. On November 22nd, I believe, is when the, when the parliament comes back, I think shows that, you know, he's just doing the things that he wants to do, uh, which which does lead one to believe that he's got a majority. I think, that, you know, it was telling, quite frankly, Libby, right after the election campaign and his victory speech where, he you know, you know the prime minister announced loudly that he, he was he received a bold mandate from Canadians, uh, which was, you know, everybody looked around and said, really, that's not the case at all. So I think he's always believed that a win for him is a win and that he understands and appreciates the fact that the NDP will likely support him on almost every initiative that he's going to take. You know, the fact that Jagmeet Singh is out there saying that, you know, well, we've got, you know, we've got our own issues that we're going to push forward and, and, you know, if the prime minister doesn't listen to us, well, you know, then we, we're, we won't vote for him. Well, he said that before, and it's never happened. Um, and, in fact, there was a number of times in the last parliament where there were times when the NDP should have basically voted against him and caused an election. They didn't. And the, the prime minister had to force himself to call an election. So I do believe that they know that the NDP and or the bloc 
or both will likely support them on many major issues because none of them can afford to have an election. None of them want to have an election. So, yeah, he's going to be governing as if he's got a majority government. Uh, you know, the timing of this is probably on his side. But yesterday, late afternoon, something we like came out, and that was that his mother, Margaret, spoke at a conference by a group that uh, lobbies the federal government and has, in fact, received millions of dollars from the federal government, a group called Elevate, and they refused to say if she was paid or not, which, to me, answers the question, is is that going anywhere, Karen? Um, I, 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 you know, I think... No, I'm not sure that that particular matter will, but I, I think that the issue, the, the bigger issue is that, um, which I think you've pointed to, is that he's not going to get, I don't think the Prime Minister is going to get the same deference uh, as he got during the COVID period that he was governing. I think that there was a general appreciation that the government needed to make decisions and, and act like a majority government because of the urgency and the uncertainty and um, the fact that we had never lived through a pandemic, and most of us in our lifetime had not lived through this kind of pandemic. So w- there was an expectation the government would do what needed to get done, and they did. And and I think the opposition parties, you know, largely worked with the government because they felt that they needed to. Um, I, I don't think the government's going to get that same deference moving forward. And whether or not they vote against the government or they demand changes to legislation or they just um, remind the government that they are a minority government, I don't how they do it, I'm not sure, but I, I'm pretty, I would expect that, that um, the Liberals are, are not, and particularly Justin Trudeau, is not going to benefit from the same generosity of spirit that he has had in the past. And, and the reality is that the majority of Canadians did not vote for him. And so I think that there is, um, and I, I think that there is a bit of um, his popularity, his personal popularity has taken a hit as well. And I think that that's going to have a much different dynamic when Parliament resumes. Well, uh, then there's also the question of Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. And, you know, the I, I talked to a lot of people af- at the election, and they all seem to be agreed that, that not taking a strong stand in favor of mandatory vaccination really hurt him. But he seems to be doubling down on that. And uh, it, it's just kind of unclear uh, whether... He's ready to be a real opposition uh, in a minority government where the popularity of the prime minister is waning. Uh, Charles, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, let's listen. The prime minister doesn't have a honeymoon. There's no honeymoon for him in this this go around. He's in a minority government. He's going to have to prove himself and fight. He'll act like he's a majority because that's the way, as a leader, he will be. And he'll have some of his individuals helping with inter- intergovernmental issues like Dominic LeBlanc and Freeland and a few of the others. But Aaron O'Toole doesn't have that luxury in that he doesn't have anything to offer his caucus. He doesn't have anything really to provide to support, and he's seen as having failed by not having won, whereas Trudeau's seen as having won by not having gotten a majority. So it's, it's very awkward. I don't know why uh, Aaron O'Toole is, is using this as his platform to oppose the federal government in the regard in regards to having people vaccinated and going back to work. It makes no he shouldn't be playing that way. To your point, it's not showing leadership. It's not showing himself as being demanding or or standing up for what I think most Canadians see as being the right thing. So I'm a bit shocked that he's taking that stand. But again, there's a lot of members in his caucus, both federally, provincially and otherwise, who are using the anti vax movement as a means by which to gain popularity in their own right. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me. It just disappoints me. John? Well, I think it, it, it continues to be an issue that, that is, is obviously challenging um, Aaron O'Toole. Um, they did during the election campaign, and it has even now you know, become a challenge, and, and he continues to sort of display that, especially now where we've got a couple of his MPs that are on social media basically saying that they respect people's privacy. I think there's a couple of things, though, that, that are important to note. Which one, one is, you know, Aaron O'Toole is very much in favor of vaccines and, and, and encourages anytime he can to, for people to get vaccinated. So that's one thing. He's not an anti-vaxxer. He doesn't believe in, he believes in vaccine. He himself, uh, you know, got vaccinated quite publicly. So I think that's an important distinction. But also, the other distinction is that he's also of the belief that you can't force people to get vaccinated. You can give people the choice and and suggest that they get vaccinated. And if they don't get vaccinated, then there's ramifications. And I think that that's 
you know, that's why I supported the uh, the premier's decision to, for proof of vaccine. I think every time we go to a restaurant, and we've all been to restaurants and or theaters over the last little while, it's, I'm more than happy to display my proof of vaccine. So I think that's an important one. So if you're not vaccinated, then you're going to pay the cost. And I think Except the cost unless you're an MP, is that, which is... is that if you're not vaccinated, you're not going to be able to sit in the side of, inside of the House of Commons. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, he he uh, challenged that um, very quickly um, uh, on the provincial side. I, I guess uh, an interesting um, note from the provincial government again: Rod Phillips in long-term care hiring more ex- inspectors. I mean, I have to say, uh, on paper anyway, it looks like they're going to clean this mess up. Do you have confidence, Karen? Yeah, I think yes, I do. Uh, make that statement. And I, and I, you know, uh, Rod Phillips is an extremely competent individual and he knows that the government needs to be seen to be taking action on this file. And, and he is. And so I think that's all very positive. And, um, there's, you know, hiring inspectors is good. There's more work that needs to get done, but it is a visible show that the government is committed to improving the long-term care situation. Uh, and Charles, I mean, the uh, attack ads have already started, both from the Conservatives and the NDP. And there was even one kind of edi- editorial comment, you know, can can the liberal Stephen Del Duca sneak in between all this? Yeah. Well, they're certainly giving him a lot of airtime and uh, more than he can afford. So that's great for, for, for Del Duca. All of a sudden they're trying to frame him. What they're doing is introducing him to the world, more so than he's ever been able to do. But not in a good way, Charles. Um, so we'll see how it plays out. Um, I, I, I think these negative ads are just that. And, and I was watching, I can't recall, it was on TV, and it was back and forth between the NDP and the Conservatives, <laughs> yeah. basically just putting each other down. And, um, uh, and as they tried to do that with Stephen Del Duke, as much as they tried, what are they going to say? I mean, the guy is not charismatic. He admits to that. But he's certainly sticking uh, to positive policies and progressive policies as he goes forward. And I, I hopefully that's what people will listen to. Okay, uh, we're basically out of time. I'm going to give everybody 20 seconds, uh, the week, the time ahead. John? Well, just to see how this uh, the cabinet unfolds, I think over the course of the next little while is going to be interesting. I think the follow-up of it is, is going to be a key to to see what kind of message, and, and as we sort of reflect, what kind of messages the Prime Minister wants to give by, by making the changes that he made. Okay, Charles? Yeah, I'm encouraged by the shuffle. I'm hopeful that it'll ignite some new enthusiasm um, to the effect that the PMO will control most of it. We all see that, but some of these individuals can make a mark. And when it comes to privacy and the conservatives trying to suggest that they shouldn't be interfering, well, they got elected, and there is no privacy. Everything's an open book with an elected official. They should get their vaccinations. Okay, Karen? Yeah, I agree with Charles. And I think, you know, just the, the final point on Aaron O'Toole, I think what we're seeing now is this This is him trying to fight to keep his job within caucus. And, uh, you know, we talked about the difference between how you campaign when you're running for leader of your party versus how you campaign when you're running for leader to be prime minister. And now he's back campaigning to be leader of his party so that he can win their heart and souls again, because I think there was some question whether he could keep his job. And I think that's what's going on right now. Okay, on that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, John Capobianco, Charles Souza, and Karen Stintz. Thank you. Good day, everyone. Okay. Thanks, everybody. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, the saga at Rogers Communication, some are comparing it to a TV series. I say you couldn't make it up when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's being dubbed Canada's real-life version of the wildly successful drama Succession. I am referring to the goings-on at one of the largest, most powerful corporations in the country, Rogers Communications, which is still controlled by the Rogers family. And you couldn't make some of the details up. It started when the CEO found out about a plot to oust him through a butt-dialed call. Think about that. And that plot to oust him was initiated by the company chairman, 
who may or may not still be the chairman, Edward Rogers. Now, Edward's mother and sister opposed the move and they dumped him as chairman of the board, but he controls a voting trust, which ultimately controls the company. And he then dumped five directors and appointed new ones who reappointed him as chairman. Okay, are you with me on this? His mothers and sisters say this is not legal and the feud has exploded in a volley of very nasty, very public tweets. Are you with me? And one more detail before we turn to the experts, and that is that Rogers is trying to get approval for a huge $26 billion takeover of Shaw Communications. Okay. Let's go to Dr. Richard LeBlanc, Professor of Governance, Law, and Ethics at York University. Welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Libby. Nice to be here. You summed it up perfectly. Thank you very much. I used to be a business reporter. Uh, So uh, do we know who is actually in control at Rogers? No. uh, You likened it to succession. this is succession Canadian style. Uh, imagine if, if Logan had passed away and gave all of the shares to Kendall. That's exactly what uh, the situation at Rogers is, is we have one son who has got all the authority. He's got 97% of the votes. Uh, the other uh, family members don't have any, and uh, he is intending on using them to remove the five directors. So what we have now is two boards that claim they are legitimate, which is not possible. Only one is legitimate. And it looks as though uh, the B.C. Supreme Court uh, will uh, opine on which one is, is valid and which one is not valid. Uh, there, w- there was one wrinkle that, that I didn't even mention, is that uh, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, is involved in this because he is on an advisory board. Now, he said... He just wants to try to bring peace. Let, let's just have a listen to what he had to say. Do we have that? A lot of families have issues and they have to get sorted out. And I'm just trying to be helpful sorting those things out um, because of my long association. And But it's heartbreaking. I mean, this is a great company and this has great employees and it has, uh, you know, it's a, it's a competitive company with other great companies. Uh, but in fact, he actually has a vote. Now, three of the people on that voting trust are siding with Edward. But if the others uh, side against him, they could get Edward out, correct? That's correct. And just to pick up on your point about Mr. Tory, you know, normally when politicians are elected to high office, uh, they are required to divest all directorships because it puts them in a very uncomfortable situation. And I appreciate Mr. Tory's uh, motivations and sentiments is to help the company. He was a former employee of Rogers, but he's now in the very unenviable position of having uh, potentially to pull the trigger on Edward Rogers as one of these seven votes. For the family to stop him, uh, they need seven votes, and that includes uh, all of the family members minus Edward, uh, the matriarch, Mrs. Rogers, the two sisters, uh, uh, Lisa Rogers, uh, David Robinson, who's a family member, um, and also uh, Thomas Hull, who's a, a childhood friend of, of Ted Rogers and the mayor of Toronto. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic with the mayor's arguments, but I think that you know an elected official really shouldn't be uh, caught between a rock and a hard place, as Mr. Tory is, to uh, to be on this advisory board. This advisory board, Libby, holds all of the power. That is, it's it, the power in our in RCI is really not in RCI. It's in this voting trust. So when you couple the voting trust with dual-class shares, what you essentially have, in my view, is one person controlling a $23 billion company. And that's not good governance, is to have one person in charge. But that was the wish of, of the founder, Ted Rogers. I mean, many entrepreneurs, they don't like committees. They don't like dilution of, of, of control. They want one person in charge. Uh, but you've got to be careful when you put one person in charge, because... There's no uh, incentive to compromise with others. And I think that that's what's uh, driving uh, much of the behavior here is that one person has all of the marbles. Okay, well, uh, before I get to that whole issue, because this is complicated stuff, and there is a way, uh, I think, that it actually uh, drills down and it affects us consumers. But 
Um, just uh, do you do you think John Tory is in a conflict of interest here? Any politician that serves on a corporate board is in a conflict of interest. If that company does business with the entity, and this would be the city of Toronto, which is very broad, then yes, the mayor is in conflict. Uh, uh, if, uh, if there is a relationship, a commercial relationship between Rogers and the city of Toronto, and, I, and, and to my knowledge, there is. So you can't simultaneously represent two uh, masters. So uh, John Tory, I mean, I've got a tremendous respect for the man, but I, I think that uh, there, the case could be made that he that he, that he might have a conflict of interest. And that's why most politicians in, in most uh, uh, regulations, they must divest their, 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 their boardships. I mean, wouldn't you have to prove that he did something to advance Roger's interest or was even, in, I mean, if he recused himself or any of those deals? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, you'd have to show that, but you, even the appearance of two entities that do business with one another and, in one case, you're on one board, and in one case, you're on the mayor. I, I don't want to be picking on Mr. Tory, but you, you asked the question about conflict of interest. It's, it's the perception of a conflict of interest. So, um, and that's why there's, a, there's a, a pretty blanket policy to relinquish all directorships. And I think that that uh, should apply to the Senate as well. The Senate of Canada, you're allowed to serve on corporate boards. And I don't think you should because it puts you in a potential conflict. Okay. Now, there's something I want to, and again, people, audience, uh, you know, I'm sure that a lot of you have Rogers shares in your mutual funds, your pension funds, whatever. So this is, uh, uh, you know, and this this was a structure that was common in, in family-controlled media companies where there are called A and B shares. So what happened was these families, these very wealthy families that own these companies, well, they decide to go public. So they'll take we the plebs in the public's money, but they won't give us a vote as you would have normally when you buy shares in a company. So there are classes of shares. And here, as uh, as Professor LeBlanc is saying, uh, Edward has all the control. That's right. And so the the other thing that I'm thinking, and this, this is what really boggles the mind on all of this, there's already a huge amount of concentration in the media business in Canada. And we pay some of the highest rates in the world. We all know that. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, they're trying to get approval for yet another mega merger that that's going to make them even bigger. And we have all this playing out, which shows everybody that there's one guy who's only there because of uh, the accident of his birth, uh, who who's controlling the whole show. I mean, aren't they sabotaging themselves? I think what you're saying, Libby, is is a good point, is that there are 10 million customers uh, in Rogers. It's, it's The media in Canada is a very high concentration of power. They're proposing a, a Shaw merger that will further that concentration, and it requires regulatory approval of three independent regulators, including the Competition Tribunal and the CRTC. The Ontario Securities Commission is making inquiries, as I understand from the press this morning. So the point is, is that the scrutiny now on dual class shares and on voting trusts uh, will come from regulators uh, when they look at, you know, do we want a major public company who is uh, very important to uh, the lives of 10 million Canadians um, under the control of uh, one individual? I mean, that's never, there's two issues here. Number one, it's the one individual, but number two, it's the issue as you brought up about um, 70% of shareholders of Rogers um, really don't have a say. They're Class B shareholders. So the family has a minority of the equity, 29% of the total equity of Rogers, but has, and one person has 97% of the vote. So we've always been in Canada uh, permissive when it comes to dual class shares. We've been respectful of founders, but all laws can change. And Regulators don't necessarily have to approve a merger. Regulators can insist on certain conditions. So one of the things that that Rogers may not have contemplated is that there's scrutiny now, and regulators and, 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 and governments, they watch the news, they know what's unfolding, and it's somewhat embarrassing to have this sort of uh, dynamic play out. But I would not at all be surprised if there's conditions on the merger 
uh, given uh, uh, that you want to person proof. And there's a saying in governance: one one vo- one share, one vote. And dual class shares have been the enemy of good corporate governance for for dozens of years now. And sometimes a scandal. It's, well, it's not really a scandal. It's a it's a because to, to my knowledge, no one's done anything illegal, and that is part of the point, is that this is perfectly legal, but sometimes when a blow-up like this occurs, the, un, the, the consequence is that there's, there's regulatory scrutiny. So they could, uh, just to wrap things up, uh, conceivably, uh, could they say you can't have this dual class anymore, or they could say you can't have the merger? I mean, I'm also reminded uh, television, which is uh, where I come from, City TV, so that when Chum, which owned City TV, sold it to CTV, they didn't get approval. They said, you have to divest some of these stations, and then Rogers bought some of them. You're exactly right. Is Regulators have enormous discretion, and they're not, uh, you know, sitting like an ostrich with their, their uh, head in the ground. They're looking, they're observing. So I would not rule out some conditions to prevent this occurrence and to have a more equitable distribution of power so that you 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 really don't have a major public internet company subject to the whims of of one person. I mean that I've never seen this in 30 years of corporate governance is 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 one person controlling a a, a 23 billion dollar company um or seeking to control and that's what the that's what the family members have not addressed. I mean, they've addressed procedure. Uh, you you really have to have an annual meeting, but they really haven't addressed the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is the voting trust coupled with the dual class shares and the enormous concentration of power in one person. And I think that that's what Canadians are seeing. Okay, and that's what uh, is not great for Canadians. Uh, Professor Richard LeBlanc, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Libby. Great to be with you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, we are going to take a break, and we are going to talk more about this when we come back. But let me give out the numbers. What do you have to say about this, and uh, do you have any hopes uh, for how this will be resolved, uh, maybe so that one person won't have so much control over such a big company. I mean, everybody has an opinion of Rogers or Bell or whoever gives you your cable and internet service. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are continuing our conversation about the goings on at Rogers, which have been likened to a soap opera compared to the hit show Succession, even though in that case, the patriarch is still alive um, and is uh, definitely, definitely uh, stranger than fiction, in my opinion. I'm going to give the numbers out if people have an uh, opinion on how it might be affecting them. 416-360-0 740 toll free 1-866-744-740. And I'd like to bring in Dr. Richard Powers, Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Thank you for being with us. Good afternoon. A pleasure to be here. Okay. Well, um, we were just talking to someone else. Um, so under the way the company is now constituted, it looks like Edward might win, uh, but he's asked to take this to the B.C. Supreme Court. Do you think that's where it will be decided? I think that's the decision on who the board is. Right now, it's still confusing for everyone. I think uh, my opinion changed just in the last 24 hours when I heard, first I heard Edward's arguments or his lawyer's arguments, but then I also heard um, Melinda, the daughter's, his sister's arguments from her lawyer, and he suggests that it would be unconscionable not to have a, a shareholders meeting. And, you know, that's a legal term that's used very rarely, though, in a situation like this. I'm not sure it has the, the legal weight that perhaps Edward's argument has. So it'll be interesting to see what the court decides. Uh-huh. And uh, do you think there is any possibility at all of some kind of compromise? The mayor of Toronto says that's what he's there to do, when in fact, he has a vote on this trust, which could uh, decide to bolster Edward or to get rid of him. 
Well, that's the interesting part. We, we still don't know all the details of the trust. That's been anything but transparent. And, and that's the way these things work. That's why the family sets up a trust in the first place, to keep things private. What is uh, quite interesting, as you pointed out previously, is that this is being aired in the public. And we, we seem to know everything that's going on except what will happen. I'm going to read a tweet from uh, Bloomberg Canada, which I think sums it up. It says, the chairman of Rogers Communications tried to fire the CEO, so the board fired him, so he fired the board. (laughs) I think that sums it up pretty well. It does. It's uh, (laughs) that's what he's purported to do, and as as you pointed out, it'll take a um, it'll take a court to decide whether he actually can do that. You know. One thing is is inevitable, I think, uh, at this stage, I think Edward does have the upper hand, even if the court rules that he has to hold a shareholders meeting. It appears that he, you know, he has the, the ability to vote those 97.5% of the shares in his favor for his dissident board, if we want to call them that at this stage. Um, so it uh, he probably will be successful. It's a more an, an issue of timing now, I think. Well, uh, a couple of things here. So... Uh, but there's this advisory board. Three of them are going with Edward. But if the other seven vote against him, he'll be out. Yeah, that's exactly right. That could happen. Although uh, no one seems to want to pull that pull that trigger yet. Uh, that would be the, the next big question. Uh, Edward has not been very coy so far. He's, he lost with uh, the the with the Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. He lost at his own board when he tried to oust uh, Jonah Talley. Uh, you'd have to think this time he, he, he's he's assured that he has the votes, or at least assured that the family doesn't have more votes than him to oust him. Okay, I mean, uh, you know, in terms of just a uh, watching a bit of a train wreck, I'm looking at the tweets from Martha Rogers. Uh, one of them, uh, this is after, uh, again, he fired one board or said he fired one board, appointed another board. Uh, they had a meeting on Sunday and they reappointed him chairman. And this is his sister. I see Ed has appointed himself the chairman. LOL. This should be taken as seriously as if he appointed himself the King of England. Like, what do you make of that? Well, it's interesting. In a previous tweet, what she also says, she's just an ordinary, you know, shareholder and you know, member of the family. She doesn't have any uh, consulting firms hiring her, any lawyers. And I think that's quite evident because any advisor would have told her not to send those tweets. I don't think they're helpful at all. Uh, that's right. Now, one of the things that this may ultimately lead to, uh, again, the, and the thing that does boggle the mind is that all of this is erupting as they're trying to get regulatory approval for a huge merger. Now, we have a ton of media concentration and we are paying some of the largest rates in the world, uh, something that uh, happens when you have a lot of concentration. And, uh, you know, while this is playing out in the public, do you think it makes it more likely that there will be conditions on that merger? Maybe, maybe they won't like this structure where, you know, the power comes down to one guy, again, who is there because of, uh, you know, where he was born. You know, I think that is a huge risk to that deal. We know that the share prices are falling both for Rogers and for Shaw, and the timing could not be worse for, for both parties. Um, what's really interesting as well is what's kind of ha- what happens to Joe Natelli, the current CEO? He's, you know, he's, he's attached his wagon to the family, and they've supported him 100%. But if Edward is successful on getting that dissident board in place, you can, you, you can bet you know, that he'll be looking for the door, or, Rogers will be show- or Mr. Rogers will be showing him the door. Well, yeah, he tried to put someone else in. I mean, I don't think that people out there really care if it's Joe Natale or or Tony Staffieri or or whomever. And I'm sure whoever is shown the door will be shown the door with a significant golden parachute, uh, which will be paid for largely by our outsized cable and internet bills. Yes, but you know, it does put the the transaction at risk. It's been Mr. Natale that has been leading the charge, arranging, trying to arrange the financing, reporting to the regulators. You know, can someone just pick up the, the pieces and put it back together and, and move on? That's that's questionable. And that's why we're seeing a number of the analysts really take a look at, at Roger's shares and downgrading them. Well, yeah, and they've lost a lot. And uh, as I'm saying, people, even if, if you did not buy Roger's shares directly, if you've got a mutual fund or pension fund or whatever it is that you've got, uh, you probably have some. 
No, uh, it would be very common. If, They're a very widely held company within the, and the institutional investors have been, you know, investing Canadian companies and Rogers is one of the biggest. So it'd be very likely that we have those in our mutual funds. And, and so do you think that, uh, that he just didn't think this through or is, is there some kind of, I don't know, uh, Machiavellian controlling thought behind all this? Well, you know, that's the, that's the, the $26 billion question, I guess. Why would he attempt a coup and to remove Joe Natelli when he didn't have the votes at the board? And that was quite clear. As soon as he brought that up, he had a couple of the directors, Mr. Horn and Mr. Lynn, supported him, but the rest said no. And, you know, next thing you know, he was out. Somebody in a situation like that, where the chair and the CEO are at odds, somebody is going to leave. It's typically the CEO. What's surprising about this is that it was the chair. Hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, this, uh, do we know, has this family feud been brewing for a long time? Are they bristling that he has all the control? Um, or is it other stuff from their childhood? I mean, who knows? Well, I think that's, yeah, we don't know any of that stuff. And, you know, I think the Shaw family put it uh, put it as well as they could. This is a family matter, and uh, they weren't going to comment out of respect for the Rogers family. Uh, somebody in the Rogers family is leaking a lot of this information or somebody close to the Rogers family. And it's intriguing that we get to see it, but it, it certainly doesn't help the reputation of family or the business. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, we were talking uh, to another governance expert earlier, and he said, well, with John Tory, there is a, an appearance of conflict. And, uh, you know, should he really be on that advisory board, even if you believe that he's just there to bring family peace? Like, what, what about, is this going to damage him? And do you think he's in a conflict? I don't believe he's in a conflict at all. John Tory, when he when we ran for mayor from the very beginning, he said he was relinquishing himself from all other duties. The only one he was maintaining was his involvement with the Rogers Family Trust. That's been known right from the beginning. It was through a, a fiduciary relationship that he had with the family and his father had had before him. So this is a long-standing uh, assignment, if you want to call it that, for Mr. Tory. Uh, he's you know. The amount of time that gentleman puts in running our helping run our city is amazing. He's allowed to have some outside interests. Yeah, well, I think there's no question about that. But at the end of the day, you know, he's got a vote. He can uh, either uh, keep Edward or get rid of him. He can, and you know, let's uh, and perhaps that is not perhaps that's the reason why they haven't gone to that vote. They don't want to put him in a position like that, which you know makes sense in a way. Okay. But, uh, to your question, I don't think he's in a conflict. Okay. Uh, in uh, 20 seconds, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think this is, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the court. Uh, I doubt that there's going to be a settlement only because both sides seem entrenched in their own positions. And at this point, I'd have to say the upper hand probably goes to Edward. Okay. Well, uh, most observers seem to be agreed on that. Thank you so much, Dr. Richard Powers. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.